0: What do most Christians get wrong when they pray? What can we learn from the Bible and history about the life cycle of a nation? And where is America on that cycle? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, I'm a minister, and I drove across Kansas this past weekend. And I gotta tell you, that is one flat state. (laughs) I drove hundreds of miles across that state this past weekend, and I only saw two mounds that could possibly qualify as hills. And I'm from Missouri. And you might think, Missouri is like right next to Kansas. So how different could it be? And before too long ago, I would have said the same thing. But as soon as we crossed the state line back into Missouri, we immediately started going up and down and up and down hills. And I'm like, wow, (laughs) I mean, we have elevation again. It was just astounding to me how instantly the terrain changes just going from one state to another. It's like when they drew these state boundary lines and I don't even know how many years ago it was hundreds of years ago or whatever, but it was not random. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so as you drive across Kansas, um, I'll just tell you in case you haven't done it before, you're not going to see a lot of action going on as far as the scenery goes. And I'm not trying to be down on the state here, but it's like if you like wide open spaces and a big blue sky, you would have loved Kansas, okay? If you like wind so powerful that you, you can't walk or even drive in a straight line, you would have loved it because they got a lot of that too. But if you need a little more variety in, in your scenery, you'd probably struggle with Kansas. You, you know, you'd see a windmill or you'd see a tower. It'd be way off in the distance, miles and miles away, and you'll drive for like two or three hours and you're still going to see that same windmill off in the distance. You're going to marvel that it looks just as far off now as it did two hours ago. Um, now thankfully they did put a scooter's coffee in like every town along the road. So that kind of kept me going as I was making my way across the state. And, uh, in any anyway, I'm saying all that to say this, there's some chapters of the Bible that can be like that. They're pretty flat. You know, there's not much to, to look at really. Uh, they seem to go on and on forever. And when it comes to those chapters in the Bible, some people like to just skip right through them as quickly as they can. Uh, chapters like the genealogies, lists of ancient cities, inventories, lists, you know those are not always page turners compared to some of the other areas of the Bible. And that's how some people view Ezekiel chapter 20. This chapter is doing something that um, that some other chapters in the Bible do. It's just recounting Israel's history. you know this is common in the Psalms, you see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in many of the prophets and those chapters can seem kind of uninteresting because it's it, you know it's like well I've heard it all before it's another history recap, you know, previously on the Bible. And you probably already know the story of Egypt and the story of the 10 plagues and the wilderness wanderings and taking the promised land. All of that to you, that's all old news. In fact, I mean, we've already done something like that in the book of Ezekiel when we went through chapter 16. He kind of retold Israel's history. And it's like, well, why is he doing it again now? Well, this chapter is looking at Israel's history, but doing so through a specific lens, okay? Cycles of idolatry and rebellion. And those are two things that Ezekiel's key issues are that he highlights in, in his book, Idolatry and Rebellion. And I found myself using the word rebellion a lot, like constantly in these lessons on Ezekiel. Um, and, you know, I even find myself doing it more in my personal life, too. But it's because it's, it's, it's a major theme of this book, and I've been swimming in it for a year and a half, and it's a major theme of this book is rebellion against God. And also, we see it so much in modern times. If you are not in a right relationship with God, you're not saved. And therefore, you are in rebellion against God. As the New Testament says it, you're God's enemy. It's a very serious thing. You know, you can't just be neutral when it comes to God. You can, you're either saved or you are at odds with him. And Ezekiel is laying into people in chapter 20 by really hammering this point home, uh, as well as their frequent idolatry over the years. And it always comes back around to God declaring that he's going to wipe the people out, and he always does something to give them patience instead. But that patience is about to run out. In just a few chapters, Israel is going to be wiped out. You know, if you're tired of hearing about doom and gloom for Israel for one chapter after another, which is what this study has really been. I, I guess I got some good news. The clock is about to run out for Israel, and so after chapter 24, Ezekiel will turn his attention to some other subjects, and, uh, and this flat stretch that we're in, that, you know, I'll, I'll admit, it might seem kind of repetitive, but it is almost at an end. We're going to reach that windmill. But in the meantime, let's keep chugging along, grab a Bible, and turn to Ezekiel 20, verse 18. If you listen last time, Ezekiel is explaining Israel's history in kind of a cyclical way. Okay, that means in cycles, repeating elements. God keeps moving them around, and they keep finding a new way to rebel against him at that place, like wherever he moves them. And so the Bible Bible uses cycles to communicate sometimes. If you think of uh, like the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, they are very cyclical, okay? There's a pattern to their layout and how Jesus is communicating to them. If you read the book of Judges, you just keep reading a cycle of, you know, people sin, so God hands them over to their enemies until they cry out to God for help. So God sends a judge, and he brings peace and stability, and then he dies, and, and the whole cycle just repeats. And, uh, and, and that's kind of what this chapter is in a nutshell. It started with Israel and Egypt. I called that section Rebellion in Egypt. Then God moved the people into the wilderness, and then we had rebellion in the wilderness. And so that's where we left off last time. And there are five elements to the cycles. Um, That's how it's been so far, okay? There's a slight deviation in the last element of the cycle this time. We'll see that in a minute. But the typical cycle, it goes like this. One, the Lord reveals himself. Two, God challenges the people to exclusive devotion, as, as in to worship him alone. Three, Israel rebels. Four, wrath is threatened. And then five, wrath is deferred. And so we talked about that. On the last episode, we talked about that in the rebellion in the wilderness section. And so now we're still in that section, and Ezekiel is about to go through the cycle again. So let's jump into it. We're going to start at verse 18. We're So we're still at this rebellion in the wilderness section, and the cycle is—we went through it last time, but it's, it's about to repeat. So starting at Ezekiel 20, verse 18, And I said to their children in the wilderness—let let me stop there for a second. <laughs> I know, I'll get through like seven words, and I'm like, okay, let's stop. Well, I just want to explain where we're breaking into the story. Um, In the last lesson, we got to where the people decided to rebel against God by not taking the promised land. You know, that story in Numbers, God told the people who wouldn't enter the promised land, he said, you're too cowardly, um, so you're going to die in the wilderness, and your children are going to inherit the land. And so now God is speaking to those children, uh, the next generation, that's why it begins with their children. So this is part one in the cycle. God reveals himself as he did to that next generation. Okay, so we'll keep going. Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules, and keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So that is part two right there. God is challenging the people to exclusive devotion. He says, worship me alone and do it my way. Verse 21. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. So that's part three, Israel rebels. So pretty self-explanatory. Okay. And we'll just keep going. We're going to read through verse 26. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spin my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries, because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good, and rules by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts, in their offering up all their firstborn, that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. So that's a big chunk of verses right there. Let's talk about them. God didn't wipe them out in the wilderness, so wrath was deferred. But they did receive a little bit of God's judgment, and that's that's what I really want to talk about this time. Um, You know, when you're reading these cycles, these patterns that repeat in the Bible— Sometimes what God is trying to turn our attention to is the part of the pattern where something is different from the regular cycle. So uh, in this one, it didn't say wrath was deferred. I mean, God didn't wipe them out totally, so wrath was deferred, but he did say something very interesting in verse 25. Maybe it stood out to you too. God said, I gave them statutes that were not good and rules by which they could not have life. And so this is a little bit confusing because the statutes, those are God's rules, right? Right. Now, we have God's rules as recorded in the Bible. You know, specifically, we have the ones in the law of Moses. And all these were good rules. You know, this is what they were supposed to be following. But here, God says he gave them bad statutes and rules, bad principles to guide themselves by. Now, this this must have been something that God communicated to the people that we don't have in Scripture. Like, he must have directed them to do some things that caused their harm. And I don't have specific examples, uh, but but perhaps, you know, let, let me think of something that it could have been. Maybe God told them to go and attack this nation when it was actually going to backfire and hurt and hurt the Israelites. Maybe God gave them a directive, but it actually caused some kind of harm, okay? Now keep in mind, this is referring to a specific time period that God did this. It was talking about the wilderness wanderings. Israel was out there for forty years, being led by God on a daily basis. He had, They had Moses and other prophets who were delivering God's words to the people on a regular basis. So we only have what's recorded in numbers. We like, we don't know all the other conversations that went on during that time between God and the people. But this still creates a little bit of a theological issue for us. Why would God ever tell someone to do something harmful? Like why would God ever give somebody bad advice? (laughs) That seems kind of sketchy, right? Our first assumption when reading a verse like verse 25 is to think, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I must not be understanding it right. Or or maybe it was translated poorly. You know, some parts of the Bible were hard to translate, and they can be a little confusing to our English. So we kind of think that, and then we just move on with our lives, because there's lots of odd little statements in the Bible that the Bible says that, you know, they don't always make sense whenever we read them through the first time. And, you know, if you're a normal, well-adjusted person, whenever you encounter verses like that, you just keep on reading and move on. Unfortunately, your Bible teacher today on this podcast is not a very normal, well-adjusted person. I'm going through Ezekiel so slowly on this podcast, so I can stop and take some time to track this stuff down, and I want to understand it for you all, and then try to explain it for you all. And so for me, like I'm like, well, I got to deal with this question before we move on. Why would God say that he gave the Israelites statutes and rules that were not good, aka bad? Like, why would God direct people to do things that would harm themselves? And so I really had to think on that this past week and um, the, past, the past few weeks, really. I think the answer is found in chapter 14 of Ezekiel. And we covered this um, last November, I want to say. I think that chapter was the biggest struggle that I had had in a chapter of Ezekiel up until maybe this one, chapter 20. So in chapter 14, we did a lesson called Idols of the Heart. In that section of verses, God said that if you come to him for a word of direction and you have idols in your heart, aka things that are more important to you than God, then God will not necessarily tell you what you need to know. God will tell you what you want to know. Because God knows what you really want. So instead of telling you what the right thing for you to do is, God just tells you to go ahead and do what you really want to do anyway. And that's really hard for us to conceive of that. Okay, you know, probably when somebody comes to you for advice, you tell them what you think is best, right? For you and me, that's probably the best thing for us to do is to tell them tell them what, what we think is best. But God's in a little bit different place. He knows a whole bunch of stuff that we don't. He knows the future. He knows what someone is going to do. He knows what is going on in someone's heart. And and he knows what someone's going to do if you say this and what someone's going to do if you say that. So God knows a lot more information than we do. So let's say you have two options, okay? Option A and option B. Don't worry about what they are. I'm just speaking hypothetically here. Let's say you have two options, A and B. God might know that somebody really, really wants to do B. Like deep down in their heart, they have an idol called B. And they're going to do what B tells them to do, or whatever helps them to get more of B. And then they come to God and they say, hey God, what do you want me to do? Show me the way. Well, God wants them to do A, but he has foreknowledge. He knows if he tells them A, they're just going to reject A and do B because that's what they actually really are intending to do. So to bypass all that, God will just say, go do B. And then they go and do B, and it doesn't work out very well for them. And we know we'd say, well, God, why didn't you just tell them to do A? I mean, didn't they do what you said? They did B. You told them to do B. Why didn't you make it work out for them? But in Ezekiel 14, we learn that God won't necessarily tell somebody what plan A is. Sometimes God will answer people according to the idol of their hearts. And that might still be for our good. Sometimes we have to try B and let B blow up in our faces a bit. So that we can come back and say, oh, okay, God, now I see why A was so much better all along. You know, that's, that, that's something that has to happen sometimes so that we <laughs> learn, learn from it, learn from our mistakes. And I think that's the best way to interpret verse 25 right here. God tells the people, I gave you rules and statutes that were not good, that did not bring you life. So meaning it did not enhance their life, or maybe that even people died. And, and they say, well, God, why did you tell us to do things that wouldn't work out very well for them? Well, the answer is, God is going to answer us according to the idols that are in our hearts. Sometimes God will just tell you what you want to hear and let you deal with the consequences. And would God do the same thing today? Like, would (laughs) you know, that's a question to ask. If that's how God operates, would God do that with you? Well, the answer is yes. Because, guys, this book called the Bible that we're studying right now, this was written so that you could understand God better, so that we could learn God's personality and learn God's ways. And that's what Ezekiel chapter twenty is helping us to do—to learn more about how God operates. So maybe you're listening and you're saying, "Well, I really don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> like, when I want—I pray to God, I want Him to direct me in Plan A, like what is what His idea of what the best thing is, not you know according to the idols in my hearts. So I want God to tell me what's best. So how can I pray that way? How can I protect myself from this? If I were to pray and ask God to guide me." How can I know that I'm asking in a way that God is going to lead me to his best for my life? Good news, there's actually a very simple way to do that, okay? It, now, it's, it's hard, but it's simple, <laughs> if that makes sense. You, here's what you got to do. You have to pray the way that Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 6, okay? And if you've he- if you heard the Lord's Prayer before, you know how it goes. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but right at the beginning of the prayer, what does it say? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So first of all, we come to God remembering his position, his deity, that he sees all things, that we fear and revere his name. So you make sure you got that down. Okay, and then also remember this next part of what Jesus told us to pray. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see, ultimately when we pray, we want God's will to be done. That's the attitude that you have to approach prayer with so that you don't have idols of the heart that are fighting with you and fighting with God as you try to talk to him. Because you know how we pray. We come When we pray, we forget to pray sometimes that God's will is done. We come to God and we have our laundry list of requests, our laundry list of desires, and we ask God to, to give them to us and to bless them, and we try to get God to do what we want. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have requests to give to God. It's okay to have requests for God. But we have to start by saying this up front. Thy will be done. Okay? means above my will, I want God's will to prevail. That's what that means. Okay? And we can't just say it. Don't just say the words. You really have to mean it. Okay? It means that, you know, you're, you're in a mindset when you pray. Regardless of what I am saying, if it's not God's will... I don't want it. So we pray, God, take this problem away. I wish I didn't have this issue. I wish I didn't have this problem. I wish I didn't have this thorn in the flesh anymore. But God, thy will be done. If it's not your will to take it away, I will trust in your will. Now, that's why I say this is simple yet hard. It's a simple thing to remember. It's a simple thing to say. It's a hard thing to pray that and mean it. We normally want to pray from a standpoint of just getting God to bless our ideas and our plans, trying to get God on our page. But prayer is not about getting God on our page. Prayer is about getting on God's page. So when we pray and ask God for guidance or wisdom or direction, which we all do from time to time, if you've already made up in your mind that, you know, what you're going to do, then God might not necessarily argue with you. He might just say, okay, go do it. Go see how that works out for you. Now, if you don't believe me that God would do that, go back to Ezekiel 14. Listen to that lesson. It was, it was a long lesson. I did that one as like a really long lesson because I did not want anybody to rip me out of context and think I was saying that we can't trust God, okay? We can trust God, but we, you know, we can't trust ourselves. We have to come to God with the right motives or the results can be disastrous, uh, last year, right about a year ago at this time, I was trying out for various churches to be a pastor or an associate pastor, and I was praying really deeply and I was praying like daily about this new direction for my life. And I th- during that time period, I interviewed and tried out at a few places, and that was a it was a long stretch of life. It was like it was about seven or eight months before I got settled in to where I, I where I am now, and I'm working for for a Christian nonprofit ministry. And a year ago at this time. That's not what I thought I would end up doing when I started the job search, but I came to find out that it was right where God wanted me. Now, as I started this search in February or March of last year, my personal desire was to work for a church. Like, I had just spent nine years working for a church. I thought it was wonderful. Like, it was excellent. I loved it. But I continuously prayed that I don't want what I want. I want what God wants. So I always told God what I desired, but I didn't want it to become an idol. I always presented it before God with the caveat that it was thy will be done, not my will be done. And every time I submitted a resume or went to an interview to try out with one of these churches, I never prayed that it would work out. I prayed that God would bless it if it was his will. And if not, I prayed he'd just throw a wrench into it and not even let it happen. And and so I say all that, Because I actually believe if I had made going to work for another church, if I had made that an idol for myself last year and just demanded and hounded God that he just placed me in a church, I think I would have ended up in one. And then I think it would have been a disaster or I would have been miserable. Like I fully believe that. I wanted to work in a church, but not if that wasn't what God wanted. Because I want what God wants more than I want what I want. And, you know, some days— that's harder to accept in other days, I'll admit. But where God guides, he will provide. He will bless. He will show himself faithful. And so when you pray, don't look at verse 25 of this chapter and let it scare you, okay? Don't let it intimidate you from, from asking God for direction. Because what we are learning in this chapter is that the, the Israelites, they had a pattern, a cycle of idolatry, okay? and we And we don't want that for ourselves. So whenever we pray, check your heart. Okay, pray like Jesus said to. Say, thy will be done. I've got a really good cross-reference for that. Um, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2. These verses are so powerful. Like, you should write this verse reference down and go meditate on on these words later, okay? The first two verses of Ecclesiastes 5. Here's what it says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, who do not know that they do wrong, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Now th- those verses right there—that's kind of an expansion of what Jesus told us to do. Whenever we pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Hallowed means holy. It means we reverence Him. We fear God. Na- we, we fear God's name. And that really helps with the next part where we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay. But you say, well, I, but I kind of like my ideas, God. You know, what if, what if I'm praying and God has different ideas? I really don't want to let go of my ideas. Well, I understand that. You know, I personally, I feel that way a lot. That's why I have to go back to the first part where I say our father, which art in heaven, God is in heaven. I'm down here on earth. God sees everything. He sees things I don't. So I can trust that he sees the big picture and he will work things out for the best. Another great thing to remember is that God likes me. <laughs> you know, Actually, God loves me. God is crazy about me. So I can trust that he knows what he's doing with my life, even if it's not what, what I want done with my life, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And if I get a little haughty and try to argue with him about his plan for my life, that's when I remember... Hallowed be thy name. Well that you know that also helps keep things in perspective. It's hard to argue with someone if you hallow his name. And that's what Israel was getting wrong. But the Old Testament is here for us so that we can learn from their mistakes and get it right. Okay, now let's get into our last segment of verses for today. And this is the last cycle of history that Ezekiel brings up in this chapter. This is going to be called Rebellion in the Promised Land. So Ezekiel 20, we're going to start at verse 27 and read through verse 32. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, In this also your fathers blaspheme me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, Then, whenever they saw any high hill or any leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering. There they sent up their pleasing aromas, and there they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of our fathers, and go whoring after their detestable things? When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols to this day. Shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone. So, in this section, Ezekiel described the cycle of idolatry that Israel once again went into in the Promised Land. As God brought them into the land of Israel, which he had promised to do long ago, again, Israel turned to idolatry over its long history. And we have a lot of examples of this, uh, especially as you read First and Second Kings, and you repeatedly something see something called the high places mentioned. And some of you may be familiar with reading about the high places, but for everyone out there who's listening in Kansas, you may have never seen high places before— Let me explain what they are in other parts of the world. We have these things called hills and mountains, areas with a higher elevation than other areas. And and the ancient pagans believed that they could have a, a greater access to the gods if they went up to an elevated location. And Israel adopted those ideas from the pagans, and they began trying to worship God their own way, not through the tabernacle or the temple, but by going up on the high places. In verse 29, Ezekiel used an interesting phrase to describe the high places. He said that they are called Bama. It's interesting. um, God is actually making another pun right here. (laughs) I've often expressed my displeasure with puns on this podcast, even though God keeps making them very often in the scriptures. So I guess I really need to get my sense of humor sanctified. Um, My wife's obviously a much godlier person than me because she forces puns on me daily. And I I usually just chastise her for it. Um, But once again, God is engaging in some wordplay here. God says that the high places were called Bama. It's a word that means going nowhere if you were to translate it into English. So if you were to read verse 29 with that in mind, it says, I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. So God is saying, where are you going when you go to the high places? You're going nowhere which again, sounds a lot like Kansas. You know, you can just drive all day long trying to make it to that next windmill, but it feels like you're going nowhere. (laughs) I know that listeners in Kansas, they're feeling attacked right now. Um, I appreciate you sticking with me if you're still here, okay? It's just, I I just spent several hours driving through your state, so I I need to get some of this off my chest, okay? In other words, what God is saying, it's meaningless to go up to the high places and ask idols what you should do. Okay, idols are chunks of wood and stone that that can't tell you anything. And so to kind of back up the interpretation I was giving in the previous section, you know, God is saying in verses 30 and 31, and if you come to ask me what you should do, I'm not telling you anything. If you ask an idol first, I have nothing to say to you. So again, whenever we pray to God, check your heart first. I, I know it's popular to say that God listens to every prayer. Generally, that is a good thing to say. But the Bible also warns us there's going to be times that God isn't listening. So check your heart as you sit down to pray, you know, and, and hey, do you ever feel like your, your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, like not really getting anywhere? Well, um, I would never say to stop praying, okay, push through, but also just take a moment if that's how you're feeling and, and do a spiritual inventory. Are there any idols in my heart that are getting in between me and God? Pray about that. Ask God to show you he wants those idols smashed even more than you do. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can just extend your right hand to God while your left hand is clutching an idol behind your back. Where did Israel get the idea that this was an okay way to seek God? Well, verse 32 said that Israel was saying, let us be like the nations. Now, that's a good reminder for us. We are never called to look at what the rest of the world is doing and just try to be more like them. Our standard is not what a country over here is doing. Our standard is God's word. And every time Israel forgot that, the cycle would start over. Well, we'll close down in a few minutes with a quick application of this chapter. Um, before I do that, we got another mailbag here. And so this one, uh, it says... Um, the book, okay, this was in reference to a couple episodes back where uh, I was speaking with Jet, Chet Morton about um, the two witnesses in Revelation. And uh, so we had a comment on along those lines. It says, the book of Jude mentioned Michael contending for Moses's body makes me think that Moses' body may not have suffered the corruption of the grave, and of course, neither did Elijah's. And I'll just break in there and say that's that's what I think too, actually. Um, well, if the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, Then that then that all fits together, you know that would make sense for why Jude implies that God is uh, preserving Elijah's body. Like then it all kind of fits together. So I mean that could very well be the case. And uh, then there was another comment there. Not sure if the 144,000 are the children for whom Rachel wept, but I suppose it could be. All children to and under were taken, not just the males. But who knows they might be considered the first fruits. So again, if you're if you're not knowing what that was talking about, it's That was discussed. uh, That was something Chet brought up in the that that um, that interview. I think that might have been the episode um, about seven raptures in the Bible. I think that's what that's what it was called. So anyway, um, yeah, I had never heard that really, too much like before Chet brought it up. And so uh, there's I looked into it. uh, I haven't looked into it as much as I want to. I've been (laughs) I've been (laughs) crazy busy the past few weeks, and I'm still going to be really busy for a couple more. But but anyway. I would like to look into it. Chet advised looking into some of the, the work that um, a uh, pastor named Billy Crone has done on this. And I looked up some of Billy, I listened to some of Billy Crone's messages. They were really good. Um, so it seems like a guy definitely worth checking out. Uh, I, have, I haven't listened to him yet on talking about the 144,000. So there's this idea out there and there is some, some biblical support for this that the 144,000 are connected with the innocent children who were slaughtered in the area of Bethlehem at the birth of Christ. And so I'm personally, I'm not sure yet where a rapture figures into all that. Um, So I'll have to look into what Billy Crone said, I guess. Um, One thing about the seven raptures theory, you know, whether there's really seven or not, it is clear that there are multiple raptures in the Bible. Uh, You know, like another thing that occurred to me after that episode where we talked to Chet um, is uh, so Jesus's ascension Forty days after his resurrection, okay? The ascension is referred to as a rapture if you look at it in the Greek, and it actually mentions that in Revelation 12, 5. So that's a verse that says, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, I know Revelation 12, it's a very symbolic chapter, but if you go through it carefully, the symbolism is very clear. The child is Jesus. He's the one to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And he is now at the right hand of, of the Father. But this verse also said that he was caught up to God and his throne. And so when did Jesus go up to heaven? Well, that's the event that we typically call the ascension of the Christ, um, the ascension of Christ, but it also uses the word caught up right there in the Bible in Revelation 12, 5. That word is harpazo. That's the Greek word that means rapture. So it would also be accurate to, to define Jesus going up to into heaven at the Ascension as a rapture. Um, and that's really easy to see because it's right there in the Greek. That's an important point to point out <laughs> because some people will say that the rapture is not in the Bible. And so you point out that Jesus ascended to heaven. You know, And a lot of times you'll hear, oh, that wasn't a rapture. You know, He just ascended to heaven without dying. Which, to me, when people say that, (laughs) it sounds so silly. That's a distinction without a difference. And especially when you look at it in the Greek, Revelation describes that event as a harpazo. Ascending to heaven without dying is a harpazo. It's a rapture, according to the Bible. Rapture is simply a word that means caught up. So when we talk about the rapture as a theological idea, what we're talking about is being caught up to heaven without dying to get into heaven, okay? Um... In Jesus' case, he had died, but you all know he resurrected, and he and he, he you know he ascended to heaven without dying to get there forty days later. So that that would that is considered a rapture theologically. Some people argue against the rapture on the basis that they believe it's just this one specific thing, which would be the the rapture of the church before the tribulation. So they're gonna so they're gonna act like it was this totally random thing that was made up in like the eighteen hundreds. Okay, well that is a rapture. But it's not the only rapture, because there's several raptures in the scripture. Revelation says Jesus was raptured. So, I mean, if you're going to disagree with that, if you're going to say the rapture is not in the Bible, um, you're just disagreeing with the Bible. because <laughs> you. And it's all because they have a, a lot, I've noticed this, people have a grudge with the word rapture, okay? Like, one thing I've noticed online, many people have a strong emotional reaction to the very word rapture. Like, you can talk about the concept of being taken to heaven without dying, and they're just fine. But once you say the word rapture, the conversation will suddenly get very heated. <laughs> so, and it, which actually, this reminds me, every time I talk about the rapture, I always get um, this one guy leaving me feedback on the episodes to try to tell me I don't believe in God's word. And um, I tried interacting with him. But here's what I would say um, to anybody who leaves feedback, because I'm always inviting more feedback but I would also ask this, please try to use like proper punctuation and grammar. Okay. Cause, and I'm not saying I expect perfection. I just want to be able to understand what it is that you're trying to say. You know, if, like if I have to sit there for 10 minutes and try to piece together, like what dots you're connecting or what you're trying to, to tell me, like, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Like, so I really do. I would love feedback, but please make it something like do your best to communicate what you're trying to say clearly. Okay. And the, my favorite way for people to communicate is by sending a, an email. You, you can be anonymous if you want, but the email to send it to is cross podcast at gmail.com. And I'd always be happy to take uh, messages from you there. If you're listening on a platform that lets you do comments, well, Hey, go ahead and leave a comment, whatever you want to do. Um, but hey, I'd love to get your, your emails. I'd love to get, um, a, 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 if you're not subscribed wherever you listen, please make sure you're subscribed. That helps me out. And the next time on this podcast, I'd really, what I'm planning on is to do a deep dive into Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin, and you find that in Acts chapter 6 and 7. The reason I want to go into that, it actually really fits with the theme of Ezekiel 20, like some of the commentaries that I've been studying. They're pointing out the parallels between Ezekiel 20 and Acts chapter 7. So my plan for next time is to visit that chapter and try to check all that out. And uh, from what I understand, it has something to do with, with cycles of history and how history repeats itself. And, and that's, um, that was certainly the theme here in Ezekiel 20. So as we close down today, let's talk about cycles of history. Um, let's talk about America. America is a powerhouse on the world scene. I mean, for basically my entire life, We've been thought of as the world's greatest superpower, the biggest kids on the block, the most powerful country to ever exist on the earth, Uh, the president of the United States. He's often thought of as the most powerful man in the world. And so we are the closest thing in modern times to the ancient idea of an empire. Well, there's this well-documented idea or theory, um, if you want to call it that, a very well-supported theory that empires last about 250 years. And from what I can tell, a lot of this thought comes from a historian in the 1950s named Sir John Baggett Glubb. And he looked at, basically, he researched 3,000 years of human history, and he says that empires, you know, there's, there's two different types of empires. Empires who seek to colonize and spread their ideas around the world and get involved in lots of foreign wars and try to kind of police the world, they have a life cycle of about 10 generations, or perhaps 250 years. Then you also have empires like China that pretty much keep to themselves. They focus their energies internally, and they can last much longer. But, um, but you know, between those two things, I mean, obviously America belongs more to the first category of, of an empire. And so John Bagot Glubb researched the life cycle of an empire, and this is what he presented as the life cycle of an empire. Okay, he says you see this repeat again and again throughout history. The first step in the cycle is the age of pioneers, and that's pretty self-explanatory. The second step, the age of conquests, you know, commercial and military expansion. And and this, this could, in America's case, it could start with America's earliest wars, like the French and Indian War, uh, the Mexican-American War, the Revolutionary War, and, and I would say that our stage that maybe is kind of interrupted there towards the end by the Civil War, you know, maybe that delayed us a bit from getting to the next stage in the cycle. So the third step is the age of commerce. That's when the businessmen take over. There's a desire for new forms of wealth. Well, you know, that sounds like America after the Civil War, especially the first half of the 20th century. Then you get into the age of affluence. That's the fourth step. That's when the country has moved beyond merely surviving militarily and economically. Now people are relaxing. Life gets easier. The empire focuses on building big cities. Again, sounds like that first half of the 20th century. Then you have the age of intellect. That's the fifth step in the cycle. The age of intellect is the pursuit of knowledge. And one way that you can identify this stage, it's when young people are thinking mostly about academic honors. More than becoming wealthy or becoming some kind of great military leader. This is when uh, you see a lot of scientific discoveries start to blossom and bloom at that stage. Uh, the, the age of intellect. The sixth and final step in the cycle of an empire is the age of decadence. And I'll quote from a website that described this. It's called, uh, the website's called TimelessMyths.com. But this is, how, this is how they described it. This is the stage where people choose to behave in unsustainable ways and unaware of their consequences. Historians often refer to this stage as the decline in religion. But Glubb shows more than religion. The empire will suffer because of excessive consumption. Absurdly wealthy elites will emerge where the masses will admire them. People will relate increased consumption to happiness. These values will permeate the public. Frivility, aestheticism, cynicism, narcissism, fanatics and fatalism and all negative behaviors affect the population so again john grubb has this book called uh, the fate of empires and i'd kind of like to read it i added it to my my amazon wish list sounds like it's worth a read but you know as you think about that description right there it's very easy to see how that applies to america it's where it seems like america <laughs> is now i mean let's talk about this as applied to america many people would point out america is about to hit its 250th year. That's going to be in 2026. America will be 250 years old. You know, If we can even make it three more years at this rate, three more years and six weeks from now, it'll be 250 years old. And um, there's this really popular column, or or maybe it's a letter to the editor. I found it on Real Clear Politics, but it's been shared in lots of places. It's by Armstrong Williams. And this is what he said. In 2026... The United States of America, founded in 1776, will celebrate its 250th anniversary. We're rapidly nearing the 250th anniversary of the fall of most previous civilizations, with ongoing internal turmoil ranging from race to financial disparity to political tribalism and other countries gradually pulling away from the orbit of the U.S.-led supremacy. It appears that the tides are turning against us. I fear that this mere statistic may soon become a reality That alters the course of our lives. After all, many citizens and politicians would celebrate our downfall, not realizing the perilous impact it would have on the freedoms they believe they do not have. I am not sure if it will be a huge international conflict, a financial catastrophe, or a civil war that causes the United States to fall apart, but I do believe that learning from the past is critical if we are to slow down the inevitable. So, you know, as I said, we're about at that 250 year mark. And many of us are looking around right now. We're scratching our heads. We're we're saying, why has America gotten so stupid? You know, it seems like we're right on track with this prediction. And I'll point out another thing as I was thinking about this. Well, if you go back to our age of pioneers, it actually goes back a lot farther than 250 years ago. We pioneered this continent starting in the 1600s. So I would say America's life cycle as an empire, it actually goes on a lot longer than 250 years So I'd say we've already beat the odds. Like, and and I'd say we've been blessed by God because we used to honor God in this country. And I believe that he sustained us for a long time and blessed us because of that. Am I saying that we were always perfect? Of course not. But we did have a very steady track record of improvement, of making our society better, making our society more godly. And then at some point, I'd say 30, 40 years ago, we peaked. And now we're on the downward slope. And as we've all noticed, it's quite a slippery slope. We look a lot more like the Israel in the book of Ezekiel than we look like the Israel in its heyday. So uh, America has already beat the odds. We've already gone beyond the 250-year mark. I mean, I would say. But also, America is very clearly in those last stages. The age of decadence, as it said. As I quoted earlier, we are living in unsustainable ways. Uh, the embrace of gay marriage over the last 20 years. That has just led to a flood of immorality in this country. 20 years ago, the national conversation was about whether it would be okay to let even one state have gay marriage. Well today, gay marriage is legal in all 50 states, and the gender distinctive has become completely eliminated. And now the national conversation is about whether it's okay to mutilate children who are confused by those erasing gender distinctives. Instead of debating about whether gay people should be a protected class of sexual orientation, now there's debates going on about whether so-called minor attracted persons are a protected class of sexual orientation. And if you just look at how much has changed in 20 years, it really makes you wonder what we're going to be debating in another 20 years, or if we'll even still be here. This is the age of decadence. America is not what it once was. Things have changed very quickly. To quote the classic movie, we aren't in Kansas anymore. But I mean it in a bad way this time. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This is Luke Taylor reminding you to pray today and to always pray that God's will is done.